Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have uh, this morning uh, something of uh, a dilemma, ladies and gentlemen, because it is time to take stock of exactly where we are uh, in the divided world of COVID-19 and how best to deal with the damage that it is doing to the very fabric of our society as well as to the health of our nation. Yesterday, it was revealed that more than 4 million people have now received their first vaccine against the virus, which is great news and must be applauded. But there are at least another 4 million people, if not twice that number, suffering unbearable pain, incredible hardship and mental anguish of the worst kind due to the effects of a 10-month-long lockdown of one form or another. We all heard Karen this morning talking through tears from Scotland to Julia Hartley Brewer about her hopes and fears for her family. Uh, Another woman talking about her daughter uh, and worries about suicidal youngsters. She speaks for the many, not the few. She also speaks for all the young people who are suffering through these tough times. Today, the Prince's Trust has warned that the coronavirus crisis has taken a devastating toll on teenagers and young adults, with many losing hope for the future, with some even incapable of contemplating it. One in four youngsters, they report, feel unable to cope with life, isolated from their loved ones and their friends, and with many unable to see beyond their current employment or unemployment. It is, ladies and gentlemen, no way to live. And it's not just youngsters, it's people with businesses as well. It's people who have been trying to make money throughout this dreadful pandemic. People who have, in some cases, had no help from the government. People who, in some cases, have had some help from the government. But people who, in all cases, are in despair. And I think it's not unusual for us to mention this, because we have been mentioning it for such a long time here at Talk Radio, that some bozos in the political establishment have decided to call us COVID deniers. Well, we're not COVID deniers. What we are doing is standing up for the ordinary men and women and children of this country who cannot take it for very much longer. And quite frankly, it's time we took a stand against it. I'm sick to death of being told that I don't care about old people dying because I do. My elderly mother is about to be 97. Of course I care about them. Of course I want people to get rid of as much COVID as possible. Of course I want the hospitals to be able to cope. Of course I want people to be well. But I also want people to notice and recognise that there are other people out there who are not affected by the disease, but who are massively affected by the cruel and unusual punishment that they have had to put up with for the past 10 months. It's got to stop. 
0344 499 1000. This morning, we are joined by statistician Jamie Jenkins with news that some parts of the country have hit a turning point in terms of infection rates. And I'll also ask him what he thinks First Minister Mark Drakeford is up to with the vaccine slowdown in Wales. We'll also be talking uh, to a medical expert, a doctor no less, to ask him, why on earth is Matt Hancock, the health secretary, self-isolating? He's already had COVID, hasn't he? Apparently he says uh, he's got to self-isolate because he's maybe got it again. Has he? Well, we need to know the truth and we need to know what on earth is going on here. 0344 499 1000. I've been talking for so long the music's run out, but don't worry about that uh, because we have a plan. Howard Cox is also here from Fairfield UK. He's got a beef with the BBC about them being anti-car. And we'll be asking him about smart motorways as well, which have been branded death traps by a coroner. That's right. The show's already begun without me, so let's get straight to it. Let's talk to Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the office for National Statistics. Jamie, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much. Sorry for taking a bit of time to get to you. I'm a bit wound up about the way this is affecting so many people, um, as if, you know, they don't matter in this world. People who are, you know, so far uh, untouched by the actual virus itself, but who are massively affected um, by the side effects of the so-called cure. Well, that's probably a good place to start with the kind of the statistics, I suppose, Mike. Yes. So you cannot forget the economic fallout of all of this. And the, the latest data we kind of have on the labour market and jobs, etc., that kind of showed that if you look at November compared to a year earlier, there were 800,000 people fewer on payrolls. Mm. So that's, a, you know, a staggering amount of people. Now, remember as well, Mike, we've also got the furlough scheme that's in place at this particular point in time. So that's masking possibly the true economic impact of this because there may be some people who are on furlough and when we come back out the back end of this pandemic there may not actually be a job for them yeah. and so that 800,000 might actually end up going up more towards a million a million plus mm. which you know it's a staggering amount of people and and remember that for every person who loses a job there's going to be the kind of the stress and the anxiety the financial impact of all of that and that then comes with all the kind of the mental health aspects and you, you've talked about kind of the mental health impacts on kind of people and young people as well. So, yeah, we cannot forget that there are all those um, other people who are affected outside of the actual numbers that we've got in terms of deaths, etc. Exactly right. Because when you think about some of the stats that you've been putting out on, on your Twitter account in the last 24 hours or so, the seven days to 16th of January, uh, there were 71.3 people of all ages for every 100,000 age 65 plus admitted to London hospitals. You're saying London seems to have hit a turning point. Tell us about that. Yeah, so London was kind of having this rapid rise in the number of hospital admissions. And, and I think a lot of people have been talking about the new variant. And I think we spoke a couple of weeks ago, Mike, that, well, we are in winter and you normally would expect a respiratory virus to start kind of spreading and becoming more virulent throughout the kind of society. So so London has hit a turning point. Mm. The, the admissions are coming down in London. And remember, there's a time lag between people catching an infection and then ending up in hospital. So we've hit that kind of turning point. Cases are down in London now. Cases are down across all parts of the country as well, which is reassuring with regards to the latest measures that are in place. Mm. They're coming down hospital admissions in the south um, east and in the east as well. There are some parts of the country where they're, they're a lot lower, but they are still rising. So you would hope that kind of they will start coming down as well in, in the coming weeks. Right. So I think we are hitting a turning point. 
but ultimately, we, you know, you'd expect that with the kind of restrictions that are in place at the moment. Well, whenever we have these conversations, Jamie, there's always two schools of thought, isn't there? There's always one school which says, you know, this is because of the lockdown. This is because the lockdown happened uh, at the beginning of January. And therefore, we're now seeing uh, the full kind of rollout of that. But on the other hand, we sometimes get told it takes more than three weeks for that effect to be felt. And others will say, well, actually, by the time the lockdown started to hit, the peak had already happened. But we were hearing even as early as part of this early part of this week that the peak hadn't come yet. Well, I think we probably passed the peak. I've heard some scientists calling for more restrictions. Yeah. And I think, obviously, well, you public, can always uh, find some know, of them. Yeah, well, the public have probably kind of reached the kind of fatigue with regards to all the restrictions. And it, and the numbers are quite clear. We are seeing a positive downward trend. Now, in Wales, I was looking at the numbers before the national restrictions are coming in December there. We started seeing it turn down uh, before the actual further national restrictions are coming in as well. So that's a, that's a positive sign. And I don't think we've, if you look at the trends, Mike, if you look at the data, mm. there were all this worry about um, people mixing for Christmas and this big spike that might cause. Yeah. You're not really seeing anything in the actual numbers themselves where you've seen a big spike because of the Christmas effect. Now, granted, it was much lower with regards to the number of days that people mm. could mix. But I haven't seen anything in the data that would suggest there was a big spike in that. Yeah, exactly right. And what did you make of Matt Hancock's uh, statement yesterday in which he was talking a bit about, um, you know, being led once again by the data? Because I would like to see the government being a little bit more kind of versatile here when it comes to looking at what has to be done uh, in order to rescue some of the mental health problems that we're having in this country as we started the uh, the conversation with. You know, it's all very well saying, oh, well, we have to have this in place and that in place and there are four tests. You know, people have reminded me it's a bit like Gordon Brown's test to join the Euro. You know, you'll never actually reach them the four tests of lifting the lockdown it seems to me are kind of variable really yeah there's a there's a number of different measures there's the hospital aspect so we're seeing that coming down but uh, but i think one thing to point out with hospitals at the moment is if you actually look at a and e attendances in december they were around a third lower than what they were a year ago and, mm. and that's you know hundreds of thousands of people not turning up to a and e now granted when you've got restrictions in place that what we've got at the moment that means that you know, people aren't going to be having as many car accidents. People aren't going to be out perhaps having fights in, in nightclubs, etc. <laughs> so it's going to be fewer people coming into kind of hospitals. But I remember my days in Cardiff, people. Jamie, with great fondness. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's a staggering amount of people, though, Mike, when you think about it. Yes. And the ONS data that came out um, just half an hour ago has been showing that since um, March, the number of people dying at home has been above the five-year average since the start of the pandemic mm. so are people too scared to go to hospitals and seek medical care and that's leading to a, you know unnecessary deaths as well that's you know that's got to be a concern yeah i don't think there's any doubt about that i mean we saw uh, a channel 4 report last week about how numbers of people in their millions uh, are having operations cancelled people are waiting more than a year for something that would normally be done uh, within a month you know there's absolutely a crisis in the nhs and it's not just a covid crisis no, and I think that's going to play out now over the next maybe five years because mm. there's a huge backlog. Remember, every month there will be new cases that would normally have come back into the health system. So you've got the backlog of all of last year. You're going to have all the new cases coming in. There's going to be obviously the impact potentially on mortality this 2021 for people who have got undiagnosed health problems from 2020 as well. So I think the fallout's going to be there for a while and, mm. and hopefully... Um, we're going to start coming out of it. I think it's, it's still important to kind of point out some of the, the, the kind of the, the critical things that are causing some of the deaths beyond just 
the virus spreading around the community. So I've been looking at the latest stats yesterday for mm. how many people are catching the virus in hospital. Yeah. And looking at the NHS England data. Now, um, if you people are talking about the second wave, Mike, starting around September time. Now, if you look at September, we've had about twenty six and a half thousand from September up to say the tenth mm. of January. Twenty six and a half thousand people in England who've potentially caught the virus in hospital looking at when they actually tested positive. And that's about one in that's about one in six people, isn't it? Yeah, it's around one in six people, 17%. And then in Wales, there's another three and a half thousand people on top of that. So that's 30,000 people. Now, remember, these are more vulnerable people, mm. which obviously will lead to deaths. And I know in Wales that people have been talking about our hospital outbreaks and leading to excess deaths there. And then care homes, uh, I was just looking at the latest stats this morning on that. So just under one in five deaths have occurred in care homes again in the latest week. Now, if we go from September there, that's five and a half thousand people in care homes who've died. We are seeing more people dying in care homes than what you'd expect for the time of year. Mm. And given that, you know, sadly, many people in care homes died earlier on in the pandemic. So you might expect maybe deaths to be lower because obviously people can't sadly die twice. Uh, I think that ring of steel that we've had around care homes since March is obviously kind of been failing us. Well, I think that's right. And I mean, we've also been hearing stories, have we not, of hospitals dispatching patients back into care homes from um, hospitals without necessarily having a COVID test. So we don't even know whether once that's being done, that could be a problem. And so there still seems to me to be the, you know, the, 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 the most important sort of death statistic, if you like, which we've had from Matt Hancock, is that 88% of those um, dying from COVID are over the age of 70. Yeah, so it's about 9 in 10 overall over the age of 65, and mm. about just under half are over 85. Now, every death is obviously a tragedy. And I was looking at the actual death rates themselves and, and comparing different parts of the country. And, and I know you wanted a little talk about the vaccines, and we'll talk about that we in a will. second. Now, if you look at the the death rates across different parts of England and Wales, and then you look at the number of deaths, say, in each local authority across the country, and then look at that in relation to the population. Wales uh, has had three of the top four areas for death rates. So Wales has been kind of having the highest mm. death rates in the country. Mm. And sadly, I live in the worst one of all. Uh, right. We're on the kind of staff. And, and also, uh, Wales, if I'm not mistaken, has had probably the tightest lockdowns of all of the four home nations, hasn't it? Well, we've kind of got the unenviable uh, kind of kind of stat, I suppose, or stats in, in Wales, in that since the start of the pandemic, We've had the lowest testing rate. So that's looking at how many tests are being carried out in relation to the size of the population. So we have the lowest kind of testing rate. We've had the highest death rate. We've got one of the slowest vaccine kind of starting rates. And we've also had some of the strictest restrictions since the start of the pandemic as well. So all of these different things aren't putting Wales in a very good light at the moment. Well, they're really not. Mark Drakeford's not exactly helping that since you, you mentioned vaccines. I mean, yesterday people were scarcely able to believe what he was saying in terms of the logic of his argument. He's basically coming out and saying uh, that he doesn't want to give away the vaccines too early uh, because they might end up running out before they can get the rest of them organised and there'll be people left standing around with nothing to do which seems an extraordinary thing to say, doesn't it? Well, it, it is extraordinary. When, and some elderly people that I've been speaking to, obviously, um, rightly would say, they'd prefer to have the, the kind of the, the shot in the arm yeah. and let the staff have a day off if they are well, if exactly. run out of vaccines. But, but I think on that point, um, the, the chief medical officers issued guidance about the, the second dose of the vaccine and not issuing that and let's get everybody the first dose mm. now in england i think over four hundred thousand second doses have been administered in wales there's very few second doses have been administered so so that discussion around 
we're holding back the vaccine just seems rather perverse because they haven't been holding them back to issue them for second doses because they haven't been doing the second doses. So, so if you look across the country, yeah, over 4 million across the UK now have had the vaccine. Northern Ireland are leading the way if you look at the percentage of the population that have got them. If you say children aren't going to get in, just look at the ages 20 plus and the percentage of getting them. It's about 9% of Northern Ireland at the mm. moment. It's about 8.2% in England and Scotland and, and Wales are kind of lagging behind on 6%. And, and the actual increase that we're seeing per day, they are going up, but you get a weekend effect where it does seem that restrict uh, the restrictions possibly in putting the vaccine out, GP surgeries being closed, et cetera, means that they're a bit lower. Mm. But even in England and um, other parts of the country, they need to increase and they are putting more vaccination centres in, but we are under kind of where you'd expect to be for the time mm. if you are going to meet this target of getting everybody vaccinated by mid-February. Yeah, and I get asked this question a lot, Jamie. I don't know if there's a way of finding out, but how many people who are admitted to hospital are then released from hospital? Because I've never yeah, seen so that we, figure. So we do get statistics on that. Um, if you look at back in the, the week to the 6th of January, there were almost 2,000 patients discharged in England with COVID as well. So, yeah, we sometimes forget that. We hear the stories of how many people are going in. We hear about the death statistics. Yeah. But, you know, the the vast majority of people, you know, good good news there, are coming out of hospital. Now, there may be some, obviously, health effects off the back of that. There's a lot mm. of talk about long COVID. But thankfully, you know, the majority of people are coming out. Yes, but I think that's a statistic that we should be getting on a daily, if not weekly basis. If the government keeps telling us, like we heard from Public Health England or the NHS rather the other day, uh, that there's an admission every 30 seconds. Well, how often is there somebody discharged? Because if that's the case, 20,000 plus a week in, uh, in NHS England, um, they must all be going somewhere because there's obviously room for them. Yeah, well, then the total number of people actually in hospital isn't much different to what you'd expect for the time of year. Right. I think the the concern is that if COVID... Careful, you might get by, called a COVID denier by Neil O'Brien MP if you say things like that. Well, but, but, but that's that's what the, the facts are. I think the concern, though, Mike, is that if obviously if COVID cases go up, what you tend to find is that the number of um, patients going in with COVID, they're in longer than a normal admission. So that's what kind of stacks up. You get mm. this kind of... Um, backlog in the system where more and more patients are going in say with COVID and they're not going to come out as fast as you would normally expect with regards to the data so but we are seeing patients come down and now if cases are coming down like they are and new admissions are starting to come down if we can continue that trend then obviously we'll be over the back end of it and the vaccination in theory what that is aimed to do in particular with the elderly and the vulnerable people which obviously will make up the sad bulk of the deaths once those vaccines are administered, you would hope then that the pressure on the NHS would start coming out. And it would be useful then to kind of have some plan for the public as to what comes beyond the vaccine. When's kind of what's going to happen with restrictions coming down? Yes. Because there's kind of a lot of silence from the different governments across the country on that. Well, that's the difficulty, isn't it? Because it's almost as though they don't want to release uh, the plan or they don't have a plan. Uh, it can't be both things, right? So uh, equally, there was talk over the weekend and yesterday of March the 8th as being a possible date. The other thing I'm hearing a lot about is the schools, of course, because many parents are up in arms about some of the things that are being said. There was a, uh, a guy uh, out this morning talking uh, called Steve Chalk, who runs a bunch of schools up and down the country, talking about the mood music of uh, the teaching uh, staff, saying that basically they're still not sure it's safe to go back to school and maybe they shouldn't be reopening the schools after half term and maybe they should keep them closed until Easter. You know, and there seems to be no appetite whatsoever uh, for taking care or taking any account of young people's mental state. 
No, well, I, I, I've got two young children myself and, and it, it is a challenge for, for the schools. I think when you look at the data, I think it's quite clear now that when the schools are kind of open, it does increase the number of cases overall in community because, you know, children are humans as well. And, and they kind of they may be kind of transmitting it with they don't get many symptoms. So it's very unlikely that you'll find them getting ill. And similar with with teachers, if they're relatively younger teachers, they'll be quite safe. And if you're a vulnerable teacher, then obviously you would want to be kind of avoiding the situation there. But I think maybe there's a call maybe to get the, we've got all the healthcare workers getting the vaccine. If the concern for the teachers is for them catching the virus mm. and then passing that. Yeah, give them the vaccine. On. Yeah, give them the vaccine. And I think, you know, what, why aren't we doing that? There's plenty, obviously, to, to kind of vaccinate. That would, that would make sense to alleviate the concern for kind of for, for the teachers. And I think with regards to society as well, that with regards to getting the virus and then transmitting it, if most of the vulnerable people are given the vaccine, then it would then make sense to reopen the schools because obviously... Professor Chris Whitty has stand, stood up on the podium many, many times over the last kind of 10 months saying that all the evidence shows that it's better for children to be in school yeah, of course it is. and out of school. Uh, but we seem to be kind of dismissing that at the moment. And, and I think you can't really, Mike, with me talking and, and learning about what's actually gone on here. And I was reading some reports this morning about a million pounds a day being spent on consultants for the test mm. and trace system. Now, the test and trace system, frankly, has been a total disaster for yeah. us, I think, because if the test and trace system was working effectively, then we wouldn't have had further restrictions in the autumn months because we would have felt comfortable that as soon as we identify a case, we track everybody down and, and get them to isolate. Mm. And so you wouldn't need to have these restrictions. So I think the policies themselves that have had to come in after these massive spends that have gone on kind of illustrate the fact that we just haven't handled this pandemic very well at all. No, I think you can only conclude that. That's the one thing you can conclude. Jamie, thank you very much indeed as ever. Jamie Jenkins, former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's as if you didn't need any more reason to know that the world has changed dramatically uh, without any kind of rhyme or reason. We've got the news this morning that, uh, as we've been telling you for many, many months, actually, uh, through the good uh, offices of Jerry Hayes, criminal barrister, former Conservative MP, uh, there's a massive backlog going on uh, in our justice system, in our court system, which was going on even before COVID uh, was even discovered in Wuhan uh, back at the beginning of last year. Let's talk to Jerry now find out what is going on out there. Jerry, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank it is a disaster area. As yeah. you rightly said, this has been going on well before COVID. Sorry to be so formally dressed, but I'm appearing in court remotely. Listen, I, would ex I now expect you to minutes. dress like that whenever you appear on Plank of the Week, once we can get you back into the building. Yeah, abs absolutely. The big question is not so much the backlog, it's are the courts safe? And many courts are not safe at all. Hmm. 69 judges have gone down. 600 court staff and court users have gone down. There's been a 46% increase of prisoners going down. And what's been happening is prisoners who have taken a test because they're symptomatic have been taken to court, taken to court and infecting other people because they were just waiting for the test. Right. The MOD 
the MOJ, the Ministry of Justice, oh, don't worry, everything is safe. Well, it is not. Barristers and solicitors are putting their lives on the line every day. Yeah. Magistrates' courts, forget about it. It's the Wild West. Right. And what about everybody else in the Western world who seems to do everything on Zoom, as we are currently doing? Why can't they do courts and justice by remote uh, access? A very good question. I'm sitting at home today because I can do that. There is, there has been, and a lot of us have been pushing for a long time, a default position, a practice statement by the Lord Chancellor says, if you can do, and I've got, it's a basic hearing I'm doing today remotely, do it. Let's stop the footfall. Let's stop the infection. But some courts still, still insist that barristers and solicitors roll up to court on totally needless hearings. Mm. Now, what the Criminal Bar Association have said, and they've been saying it for months, let's have a national protocol. If I need to see a client who wants to give me instructions to plead guilty or not guilty, then it's a good idea if I go to court to see him and take all the precautions. Mm. But if he's given me good instructions through his solicitors and he's going to he's made a decision or he's going to be sentenced something which can be agreed a conversation like you and i are having now can be had in court why don't judges just say yes we agree with this mm. why don't the moj say let's have a national protocol Absolutely, because I was hearing this morning a terrible story of a young woman who was uh, preparing herself to go uh, as a witness to a rape case, uh, which has now been put off for another year, which you can imagine the terrible trauma that she would be preparing yeah. herself for, which now won't be happening. And there's something like hundreds of thousands, was it as many as half a million cases now, uh, are having to be put back by at least a minimum of 12 to 24 months. Well, that's if you include the magistrates court. It's yeah. probably about 45,000 crown court trials before COVID. It was about 35. But those are old arguments. The real, real problem is the risk to people's lives, mm. whether it's judges, whether it's jurors. I mean, there was one guy, a barrister got up in court a few weeks ago and says, Your Honor, this court is not safe. Oh, yes, yes, it is. The judge gets it. The jury gets it. Barristers get it. There's a guy in the middle of a case who's just been infected. He's up in the Midlands, a right. uh, barrister, just been infected by his client. And he's now having to self-isolate in a hotel, which no doubt he's got to pay for and won't get the money back for. That is what is happening. The magistrates put courts. People like me, by and large, don't go there. It's the kids who go there. Mm. There was one guy in my chambers. He said to the magistrates, look, there are 12 people in this court. This has got to stop. So what the magistrate said was, well, look, what we can do, we can all get on a train and go to another one. He says, what? All of us on public transport. Yeah. People have got to wake up to the realities. It really is incredible, isn't it, that you can have yeah. something like this where everything else basically shut down. And I mean, of course, as you say, Jerry, we can't close down justice. You can't close down, you know, the ability for people to be taken to court. And let's face it. I mean, presumably all these people who can't get a trial are either now sitting uh, languishing at Her Majesty's pleasure uh, or have been released. Well, it's worse than that. Uh, I was meant to be starting an attempted, a very serious attempted murder trial, which I'm defending uh, in, well, I can't remember, it is Birmingham, mm. uh, on Monday, yesterday. Uh, it had to be bumped because the court that was going to be held in has got a COVID problem. They have been in custody for nearly a year. I haven't actually met them yet because the prison that they are held in happens to be locked down. It's mm. been locked down. 
for months. I've had one remote video conference with them, like we're having now, um, for the whole of the time. Luckily, right. Ms. Lister's got some instructions. But that is appalling. I don't know when the trial is going to be. They could be in custody for a year. Yeah. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. To be fair, if it was up to me, Jerry, all prisons would be locked down anyway, because that's what they're meant to be, isn't it? I mean, it's a prison version. So. <laughs> You've got to be able to speak to your lawyer, haven't you? Let them make a phone call for 10p. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in favour of all of this liberalism where people get to talk to their lawyers in person. Nonsense. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> rubbish. Anyway, we all listen, know old lefty. Yes, and delightful to see you. Well, as actually, ever. probably a Stalinist, actually. Uh, well, you know, compared <laughs> to some people, I am a lefty, actually, but we can't say too much about that. Jerry, good to see you, and delightful that you were dressing up for us. Thank you very much indeed. Good luck with the case today. Jerry Hayes, criminal barrister, former Conservative MP, quite rightly saying that the mess that we are now dealing with uh, in this country because of COVID um, is so ridiculous that the government is going to have to stop being so one-dimensional because that's what I think the government has become. It has become one-dimensional, incapable of looking around itself in a 360-degree view to see what's actually going on outside of the tent because the tent they think they are in uh, is safe. But it turns out it's not that safe because Matt Hancock, for a start, has now self-isolated again. This is a guy who already had COVID back at the beginning when they all got it. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you either, one, that whatever precautions they're taking don't work, or it tells you that, two, the fact that you've had it doesn't stop you having to self-isolate again. Why doesn't he just not self-isolate? Because there isn't any reason to do so. If he does self-isolate, maybe he could hand over the job to somebody else for a while and see if they can do any better. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mid-morning with 
Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Big day tomorrow, of course, the inauguration of Joe Biden as the new President of the United States of America. We will bring it all to you here live uh, from five o'clock on Drive right here on Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to go live now to Washington, D.C. Uh, to, to our good friend, Mr. John Pinar, who's there uh, on the spot. John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, mate. Hi. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. It must be quite an eerie place at the moment. I mean, you and I know the town very well indeed. I'm sure you've been there in, in uh, busier times when you could actually go and have a decent steak somewhere and a glass of, uh, uh, of red wine from California. But it looks more and more to me like a sort of a, uh, a, down, a scene from downtown Baghdad at the height of the, of the war there. That, that's exactly right, Mike. It, it is this, this strange, unreal combination of being highly militarized and still eerily quiet. Mm. Um, this is still a, a city in a country in a world with a, with a pandemic going on. And there's a semi-lockdown in Washington, D.C., as there is across large parts of this country. So shops are closed. People are working from home. The streets are very quiet. And when you add to that, as you say, the, the fact that tens of thousands of troops, National Guardsmen and women from all over the states and the territories of the USA are here in D.C. with large numbers of federal agents backing them up from every federal government agency and the police of the Metro Police, the Capitol Police. Just, just imagine that. It is completely so unlike the town that I know pretty well and you do too. Yeah, I mean, I remember sitting um, on a sort of a grassy knoll, for want of a better phrase, uh, on July the 4th one day, very hot day, because you know how hot it gets in, in the summer. Roberta Flack singing on the steps of the Capitol building, you know, God bless America. And it was just a, a, a very American scene. I mean, it's going a long way back into, you know, the last century that. But, but you know, I can't imagine the mall, you know, the, the National Monument, the steps of the Capitol, the place that everybody normally just sees an awful lot of people walking around, deserted. I, can't, I just can't imagine it. Well, I mean, you can't get to them except virtually, except mm. um, from aerial aerial shots. Uh, there's there's an eight foot fence surrounding not just the Capitol and the and the White House, but that entire entire neighbourhood. Mm. An eight foot fence topped with with razor wire, with military vehicles, police troops. You know, you can see there the sort of scene you can see all over this city and certainly around the the, the centre in downtown downtown DC. So. The stuff where you're describing there, look, I'm in the middle of downtown DC now. I won't be there. I won't be seeing this. The mall is going to be is going to be empty. Right. I mean, Joe Biden tomorrow at noon is going to be on the steps of the Capitol in time honoured fashion, and so will Kamala Harris, the Chief Justice, and they will do they will do all of that. But there'll be no crowd of any any size whatsoever, and people will be watching it on their on their screens, um, including the Victory Parade, including J Lo. Um, and Justin Timberlake and Lady Gaga, who will be there doing their performance to a crowd of, well, close to, to zero, except yeah. those looking in. It's surreal, isn't it? And, and is there a genuine fear uh, of some kind of violent uh, episode? Because, I mean, with that many people and with that much kind of, um, you know, shall we say, fencing around uh, a, what, what is effectively a military no-go zone, I mean, surely they can't be worried about anything actually breaching that. Yeah, I think the I think the the National Guard, the Secret Service, who are coordinating the whole thing, they seem pretty confident they can avoid, you know, anything happening at that at that site. You know, they've got so many so many troops, they've got so much security, they feel pretty confident about that. But if you talk about the atmosphere, well, how could it not be nervous? How could it not be be fearful? Just look around you. Look at the, the what we've been hearing since the weekend before the weekend. When I arrived, Mike, in the at the weekend. 
Um, on that Sunday, the, the very next day, there was all of this expectation of a mass march here in D.C. and also across across America at state capitals, especially the swing states, of armed armed marches turning up to protest and lots of talk of online hard right wing chat rooms and websites saying, bring your guns, we're going to cause mayhem. And the response was, was as you would expect. And I found it down in downtown D.C. I mean, I turned up. I went down there, you know, with my notebook in one hand and my recording microphone in another and my bulletproof vest on. And mostly what I saw down there were troops and other journalists with a notebook in one hand and a, and a microphone in the other hand and right. just talking. I'm sure I saw at one point a couple of news crews talking to each other, interviewing right. each other. You know, there weren't too many other people. That's, about the, that's the strange it is, thing, it isn't it? And I mean, I mean, it's it's always very strange, I think, for us but from this country to see. I mean, some of the marching that we've seen over the course of the last four years and some of the various uh, either BLM marches or, or the other marches from Trump supporters where people are marching down city streets armed to the teeth. And you look at it and you kind of go... What's going on here? But they're, you know, yeah. they regard it as part of their constitutional right. Most often, they don't actually fire the guns. But it's pretty scary looking. This is where you you have to remind yourself when you come here at any time, let alone a time like this, that this is a, a different country. Hmm. This, in, in in ways like that, is a foreign country to to British British eyes. And as you said, the idea of a march of heavily armed men with body armor, automatic weapons, with uh, sidearms on their hips, and combat knives in their in their belt. That is not unknown here. We saw, you know, a, a good few weeks ago, such a crowd descend on the, the state capitol in Michigan. They broke into the state house there to protest and, and have, a, have a good shout at their lawmakers there. Now, imagine that. Well, you can't imagine that in our country because it is simply unimaginable. Mm. Now, here, it is weird and much remarked upon and gets a lot of attention, but it is kind of in keeping with the culture of a very different place. It is. And I suppose the big question uh, that's on everybody's lips is when do we see the departure of Donald Trump? Because, of course, famously, he's not going to be at the inauguration tomorrow. Um, we've seen Melania Trump's kind of farewell uh, in, a, in a, what, what I could regard as quite a, a sort of a pleasant speech that she made. And, and some would say ironic in some ways. What about uh, Donald Trump? When do you expect him to kind of clamber into Marine One and, and disappear from uh, from view? Well, he's going to be he's going to be out of here before Joe Biden does what he does. He's going to do everything he can to avoid all of the traditional pleasantries that you would expect to see in normal times when you see the handover from one president to the to the next. So we will not see uh, Donald Trump and Melania kissing and shaking hands with Jill Biden and, and Joe Biden on the steps of the White House. There won't be a tour of the White House, which the first lady would traditionally give to the to the incoming family. Mm. Instead, we will see the president leaving before Joe Biden gets going. He'll get in the, the Marine One helicopter, head off to Andrews Air Force Base, and there will be all of the military pomp and ceremony that the president can, can basically get together. He wants to go off with a show. And so there'll be salutes, there'll be guards, there'll be Marines, and there'll be all of that sort of sort of thing. And maybe some words from the president as well, which will be, be interesting. And then off to a, a bit of a celebration of his time. Mm. And he wants to get as many people together for that as he possibly can. In, invitations have gone out so, saying basically bring five mates if you want to come. And I think they want to get a big crowd together. I'm not sure that's as easy as they would have like it to be. People have been invited who have absolutely no intention of going mm. and really have no time for President Trump at all. And will that be in Washington, you mean, or in, in Mar-a-Lago? No, he's, he's going to be heading, well, he's going to be heading down to uh, Florida, yeah. uh, to his to his, his resort, his, his, his club, Mar-a-Lago, um, and, and setting it up there and having a bit of a gathering there with some pomp and ceremony there, there too. Although, interestingly, 
down in, in Florida, the welcome, the welcome won't be as, as warm as perhaps he would like. Some of the locals, apparently, around that area, that neighborhood in Florida, are going to court to stop him staying there, stop him living there, <laughs> on, on the basis I mean, that, that the, the rules of the club don't let you stay there very long, and they're going to try and use that. But Donald Trump is used to fights in courts, isn't he? He really is. I wonder if he's going to hang on to Air Force One for a bit as well and just say <laughs> he can't have it back. But, I mean, he's not going away, is he? That's the problem. Well, he's got a lot, a lot on his mind now. I mean, we, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we'd have been talking about Donald Trump's future as a force in the Republican Party, out of office, you know, calling the shots in the Republican Party, and unable to stop anyone else getting together a run for the presidency. That is over now. He is politically a a busted flush. I mean, all around the GOP, the Grand Old Party, the Republican Party, people are running for cover, and uh, and as for Donald Trump himself. Well, as soon as he leaves office, he is said to be very, very concerned about a possible influx of lawsuits and, and criminal prosecutions. I'm not just talking about the impeachment on Capitol Hill and, and the, the Senate trial. We wait to hear when that when that takes place. But in New York, for example, the Southern District of New York, the, the, the prosecutors there have cases ready of tax evasion and business fraud. And they're said to be ready with that in the state of Georgia. There's talk of a, an action for electoral interference. And so look, this is one of the reasons the, prime, uh, the president seems to be, well, not just preoccupied, but rather rather worried. Mm. Although, you know, I'm guessing because no one's seen him for days. He's been inside the White House uh, keeping his head down. Yeah. John, great to talk to you. And uh, we'll hopefully come back to you again tomorrow. Enjoy the day. I'm sure it's freezing cold there. Uh, not much uh, action going on. No Georgetown restaurants open. You know, no bars that you can go and drink a pink gin in uh, or a martini uh, with an olive or a twist. Unfortunately, Ebbets Grill not open. The White House completely and utterly uh, ringed by armed heavily armed army militias. Absolutely extraordinary times. Uh, we'll bring you, of course, all of the inauguration with Joe Biden live right here on Talk Radio tomorrow. That was John Pienaar, our man in Washington. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us go without further ado to Mr Howard Cox, a man uh, who gets even more abuse on Twitter than I get, uh, which is saying something. Howard, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well indeed, sir. Very well indeed. Now, a couple of things to talk about this morning. We'll get on to your uh, complaints about the BBC. But what do you make of the front page of the Daily Mail this morning? Smart motorways condemned as death traps by a coroner. I mean, this is probably the stupidest idea that anybody ever had for how to run a motorway, isn't it? Well, you, you, you've uh, used the word common sense. I mean, where is it in the Department of Transport? Yeah, um, we, we've seen this for years and years. It, three lanes of motorway, two lanes of motorway, 70 mile an hour, and they block off the one sanctuary where you're safe, i.e. the hard shoulder. Mm. Uh, and it, it beggars belief with 30 or 40 people dying as a result, uh, you know, because of uh, smart motorways. Uh, and the only reason they've done it is to save money from expanding motorways to four lanes or five right. lanes. Right. That's the reason why they've done it. It's not due to safety. It's due totally and utterly saving money. Yeah, well, I mean, how can you describe something as safe when the people who are using the very road that you're saying is safe don't know whether they can drive in one lane or another? Well, that, 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 you hit the nail on the head. I mean, no one understands it. When you, I've driven on motorways uh, in the middle lane and, 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 and the slow lane, etc., and I've seen cars parked on the smart road motorway, there's no uh, hard shoulder. And it, it, I'm actually thinking, God, one mistake, one little drift over to hit that, uh, that, that person stuck in, a, uh, in the lane that I'm driving in yeah. is stopped in the middle of it. 
and it's stupid. Now, aren't we? Well, there's loads of people anti uh, uh, this, but there's not enough opposition, I'm afraid, from our motoring association. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because let's move on to your uh, your broader point, which you've written to uh, the BBC about, and you've also, I believe, written to Ofcom about, that your worry is that BBC presenters are actually biased against car and van drivers. Well, much of the uh, the media is waging war uh, on the motorists, and it, but it's led by the BBC. And my intro is flooded with people complaining about the way they are portrayed. They are demonised, demonised motorists. Every environmental ill, anything that happens regarding breathing, emissions, etc., they bring car drivers in, and there's never anyone standing up for the driver. Mm. 90% of the actual report is usually about cycle lanes and cyclists and how healthy they are. And certain major, very, very well, and I won't name them, presenters who actually put their uh, opinion regarding cyclists and how important they are in cycle lanes, and they attack drivers. And there's never one anyone standing up for the driver. Yeah. And let's face it, this is an interesting little statistic. Uh, the BBC spent 34 million on taxes in the last three years, and of which 350,000 they didn't use pounds. Three, so, sorry, let's just have that one again. 34 million pounds on taxes in the last three years, about wow. 10 million pounds, nearly nearly a million a month. Right, that's extraordinary. Isn't it? Yeah, well, when you think about how much that costs, and we run a campaign to keep motoring costs down, they should be thanking me, Fairfield UK, because we've actually frozen duty for 10 years, mm. but instead. Well, you know, I, I'm actually the devil incarnate. Yes, but that's partly as well, Howard, isn't it? Because of this kind of um, creeping do-gooding uh, society that we've found ourselves living in, where anyone with any idea which is not apparently something that Jeremy Corbyn would rubber stamp, or anybody that wants to ride around in the city of London with, in anything other than an electric bike uh, or a scooter uh, or a push bike of some description, you know, anyone that doesn't want to save the environment uh, is somehow the devil uh, from the deep blue sea. Absolutely. I mean, I was actually contacted by someone confidentially, uh, a very senior BBC producer in the BBC's uh, News at Six and News at Ten offices. And he, we met off-site about, uh, about half a mile from the BBC head offices. And he sat down with you, bought me a coffee and said, Howard, everything you're saying on Twitter, everything you're saying on Facebook, everything you're saying to your supporters and talking to MPs is correct. Something like... Um, I think it's eight out of the 10 editorial staff cycle. They come in Lycra, they come in uh, trainers, etc. Mm. Uh, none of them drive. And this, so how can they actually represent the 37 million, the 70% of the electorate, all who pay BBC licence mm. fee, uh, uh, fairly? They don't. They, they put their own agenda on this. And as you quite rightly say, uh, we've got a Conservative government, which is also a big influence by the same type of people. And for some reason, I didn't vote for a government that is, is, is uh, that has such a green agenda. Mm. Well, I mean, let's face it, Boris Johnson was the guy who introduced the Boris bikes into London, so I'm not that surprised uh, that he is a cycling enthusiast. But the problem for me with cyclists, right, is that when the weather is damp and cold and horrible, you barely see them. You know, they all come out when it's very nice and sunny. Uh, but all this talk of how they love to travel by bike, no matter what the weather is, is an absolute and utter fallacy. Also, they're very white, they're very middle class, and they're very male. You very rarely see women cycling, and you very rarely see anybody cycling on a bike, in, certainly in my city of London, uh, who isn't white. Well, I haven't seen a cyclist that, that is carrying his plumbing tools or uh, all those sort of things, the, the small uh, uh, businessman. The point is... I'm not anti-cyclist, and I don't think you are anti-cyclist. No. Uh, 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 in cycling per se, but we've got congested roads 
why are we spending money on making them even more congested and even uh, stimulating more pollution? The BBC doesn't cover that. One particular report, and I won't mention the name of the person, but the person was actually cycling on a cycle lane with a GoPro webcam uh, on his head mm. and being fo- and someone was actually taking a picture of him uh, cycling. So they were in the lane photographing from behind. And at the end of the report, they said, it's vital that we uh, build cycle lanes. It's vital that we do this for the health of our nation, etc." Sorry, that's in part, not impartial, is it? Mm. That is saying pro-cycling, pro-cycling, pro-cycling. Yeah. And there is never, ever anyone from the driving fraternity that actually is allowed to actually put but, the opposite. But that's also the same problem that we have with climate change as well. Because yes. whenever you see uh, the BBC interviewing somebody uh, who is representing some green outfit, there's never anybody there to actually counter anything they're saying. And it's not about saying uh, that you want to deny that climate change is happening. But, you know, you need a little bit of balance when it comes to these things. And they're just not capable of doing it. And, and I've I seen uh, pictures all the time. I mean, Christo here at uh, Talk Radio talks about cyclists an awful lot because he comes into work quite a lot in the dark, goes home in the dark. Almost every day he sees somebody cycling without lights, wearing dark clothing and without a helmet, you know, uh, sometimes talking on the phone. You know, nobody's saying that they all do it, but the fact remains that when they do do it, they should be punished for breaking the law. And they never are. And there's a reason for that, because they're not registered, they're not insured. You know, I've got a separate project going on, which you know about, Howard, where we're trying to make that happen. And we'll, we'll bring you more news on that as, as we do it. But tell us how your, so, uh, your complaint so far has been dealt with. Well, we've written to Ofcom and we also copied... Uh... Uh, Julian Knight and, and the Culture Select Committee as well. The, uh, and Julian Knight was actually, uh, who's, who's chair of that, was actually chair of our all-party parliamentary group, the Fairfield. So he's got some empathy with us on that respect. But I just want to bring one more point in about the BBC. Hmm. The BBC itself, you know, I, I, I was looking at BBC News Channel last Friday and I accidentally landed on BBC Two and there was the bite-sized children's uh, education programme. So yeah. there's lots of millions of kids being educated. They spent 10 minutes on eulogising Greta Thunberg. Now, Blimey. sorry, isn't that bias? I mean, apparently I found out since they've done it four days on the trot, 10 minutes spot saying how great she is. Right. And so our children, our BBC have decided they should do that. Now, why don't they talk about the fact is that hauliers in the last 10 years have reduced emissions by 50%. Mm. Why isn't that mentioned? And I can go on forever. Why did the fifth largest contributor to the Exchequer? Are comes from drivers. Yeah, they're the highest tax motorists in the world. That's never mentioned. Well, it's funny they don't object to all these lorries coming into the centre of London uh, when they're when they're demonstrating about Brexit. That's okay, uh, even if they all may or may not be sponsored by the SNP when they come in to complain about the fisheries problem. You know, nobody from the Remainer side of the argument who seems to spend a lot of time cycling about uh, ever say, "Well, what on earth is going on here? What about all the pollution that they're causing?" Absolutely right. And and what's happened, I've written this letter to the Director General, the new Director General. He's, he actually uh, came out and said he wants to actually stamp, make sure the BBC reporting is impartial. Yeah. Fantastic. Great news. So we've emphasised that point. I understand they've employed some of the £300,000 to actually monitor that process, <laughs> which is great. Of course for, they have. <laughs> That'll be, isn't that that guy Macquarie? Who was yes. who was formerly the head of BBC Scotland? I think I know him slightly actually. Yeah, and he yeah. was retired. I made this point the other week. When you leave the BBC, you don't actually ever leave it. So he leaves the job of head of regions, right? Because he's retired, but he's now got a new job for the same salary uh, and the same conditions. I mean, that tells me he hasn't left the job. Sorry. Yeah, I, I know. And well, anyway, well, I've, I've written this letter and I've cited lots of examples in it. I think you've seen a copy of it. And what we've done. Uh, uh, what I've had so bad, I've had acknowledgement for Ofcom who said that we've got to follow the BBC 
uh, um, complaints mm. procedure, but keep us informed. We will monitor this. Yes. Uh, I think it will be a whitewash, but if they whitewash it, watch me go. And the Sun have already reported on the letter and that several other of the tabloids yeah. are interested in this too. Yeah, well, we'll certainly keep an eye on it as well. Let me ask you about a, a story that I spotted last late last night, actually, about the city of Bath, which is a place <laughs> I love very dearly. I spent a great deal of time there. I went to university there. It's a wonderful place, beautiful, uh, laid out kind of, you know, Georgian city. Gorgeous. The people who run it, right, the, the bozos who call themselves Bath and North East Somerset Council have decided that not only are they going to close off the whole of the central part of the city to vehicles, but they're actually going to say to you that even if you want to get something delivered to your home, which would include presumably food, which is uh, an essential part of life, you need to put in a request which might take 20 days to get a, a, a approval for, right? And they're not saying it's because of pollution, unusually this time. They're saying it's because of terrorism. They seem to have forgotten that London Bridge terrorist attacks were not done with a vehicle. They seem to have forgotten that the bloke in France who got his head cut off, uh, who was a teacher, was not attacked by someone in a vehicle. Uh, the Bataclan murders were done by people roaming the streets with machine guns. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Well, it's worrying right, right across the nation. I've actually... Uh, take on Bath regarding the emissions uh, and uh, uh, cycle lanes, etc. Yeah. I'm still having a bit of a, a, a battle with them. But right across the country, we've got local authorities, local councils who do not have a transport plan, do not have a, 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 a even consider uh, what the benefits of motoring and driving is all about. And they get up in the morning and they think of these harebrained art schemes and to, to choose terrorism as a reason to ban uh, or make it even more anti-driver uh, just like the BBC, is just beggar's belief. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's obviously something they're getting up to because a friend of mine who runs a pub not a million miles from here uh, who's got a bit of a cul-de-sac situation going on, he had, when the pubs were still allowed to stay open and you were allowed to have people sitting outside them, he had put some tables and chairs uh, at the end of this road, which is a dead-end road leading to his pub, right? Um, and the local council came by and said... Uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, they seem a bit too close together. You might have to move them a bit further apart. So he did that. And then they came back the next time and they said, uh, what um, uh, measures have you got against terrorism? And he went, it's a, it's a dead end street. You know, why would anybody drive a car down it? What are you talking about? But they made him put these huge, big sort of plant pots in front, which, of yeah. course, wouldn't stop a car anyway. Um, but they've, somebody's obviously woken up to this idea in local government that we can use terrorism as a way of, you know, somehow stopping cars. Well, I hope that you will put Bath Council into the plank of the week consideration. They are going in it, I'm afraid, yep. <laughs> well, I watch it avidly and so do a lot of our supporters. Excellent. And we'd like to thank the talk radio actually for talking common sense. But the BBC, I will, as soon as I get anything back from them, I'll let you know. But if they don't come back to me within another week. Yeah. I'm giving them two to three weeks response. I'm hitting them hard. Yeah, good man. Howard, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Howard Cox, Fair Fuel UK campaign. A man uh, who is very fair, right? Because he believes that people who have the need to use vehicles to make a living, as many, many people do, should be allowed to do so. I mean, the amount of money you now have to pay to drive a car or a van into London if you wish to do business in it, and a lot of people do, is absolutely prodigious. Some people are paying 25 quid a day 
Now, if you're a courier, uh, you're a self-made man, uh, you're a van driver, if you're doing any kind of business which involves having to cart a load of equipment around, that is a massive amount of money. Can you imagine spending 125 quid a week simply on driving in and out of the place of work where you have to go? That's before you've parked it, that's before you put any fuel in it. It's absolutely disgraceful. And as for what they're doing in Bath, Plank of the Week doesn't even begin to get you there. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Ian Collins coming up uh, just before one o'clock to tell us what's going on on his show. And, of course, Mark Dolan will be here uh, in for Dan Wooten at four. Michelle is in Yorkshire. Hello, Michelle. Uh, Hi. Hi, Hi. Nice to talk to you. Yes, nice to talk to you Um, too. What can I do for you? Right. Well, I'd like to talk about my daughters. Okay. Um, my daughter, my daughters are actually aged twenty six and twenty four. Right. And uh, they're actually half Filipino because I was originally married to a Filipino. And now, obviously, if you know anything about Filipinos, you know they're partly Chinese. Mm. And obviously, the Chinese have been badly affected by this virus. Yes. Now, I haven't actually seen my daughters since uh, December two thousand nineteen. Right. Now, that's a terrible amount of time. Now, the, the main reason for that is um, each situation that happened with the lockdown, my daughter's kind of got trapped in, mm. in a bubble. Right. Um, and whereabouts, so, whereabouts are they, Michelle? Well, one daughter's living in Leeds and the other daughter's living in Manchester at the moment. Okay. But my, other, my younger daughter was actually living up in the, um, I've got the name of it, Newcastle area. Okay. Because she was doing artwork and she was travelling quite a bit. Right. Now... Because of this situation, every time the lockdown happened, she couldn't move around. And, and, and I normally see them at Christmas. Mm. But as you know, the Christmas of 2020, everyone was locked down, so they yeah. couldn't come and see me. Right. So I've been struggling myself because I'm actually transgender, so I don't mind admitting that I'm transgender. And I've had many years of struggle. Mm. As you can imagine, I was previously married. Yeah. I had many, many years of difficulty in seeing my daughters because of my transgender change. Mm. Because once that was in the pipe, um, there were certain limitations on when I could see my children. Right. Obviously, things sorted out and everything settled down. And, you know, I got permission to see my kids and now they can come and see me whenever they wanted, right. I thought, until this virus came along. Uh, we'll call it the COVID destroyer. <laughs> yes, I oh, know it's well, dreadful, isn't it? And have they got kids? Have, have they got kids? So have you, are you like a grandparent as well? Um, no, actually, no. That's one of the things you see because my daughters want it. Were they're at a critical time in their life? I mean, no, it's not just my daughters; it's any children around that age. Mm. They're in they're in the time of life where they're actually doing they're establishing their own future. Yes. And I actually did some counselling skills back in two thousand seven to try to help my children to understand my issues with my gender, you see. Mm. So I did these counselling skills for a while. So I, I became quite empathic as to what other people would would feel towards someone like me yeah. being transgender. Now, obviously, this virus has completely turned everything on its head because mm. it's put people in isolation where they're, they're spending hours of time pondering their own futures yeah. and uh, it, it forces people to reevaluate everything in their life because instead of being busy at work and spending all the time um, basically focused on what they're doing, yes, uh, they've got too much time on their hands. And I think that's it, true. I think a lot of people are finding that, and you know, it's tough because yeah. you're not used to it, are you? Exactly. So you end up with all this time where fear uh, festers, mm. fear festers in your 
inner being and 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 it, it destroys your ambitions and because it, it puts this this huge um dark cloud over what you thought yes. your future was going to be like because all of a sudden <clears throat> it's like when we did counseling we talked about congruence and about about the foundation that makes you who you are mm. and everything that we build is based on that foundation now if somebody rips that out from under you, it destroys your hope. It's it very difficult. Are you able to speak to your daughters, Michelle? Oh, yeah, I can talk to them on Facebook. That's but as, good. What, as we know, with all this situation, with all this censorship going on, we don't even know if Facebook's going to be here in another year's well, time, do we? Because there could be some kind of backlash, what with the censorship that's been going on. Well, you on. never know, do you? But, I mean, at least you can talk to them, which is good, and hopefully yeah. at some point or other you'll be able to see them again. But, listen, you make a really good point, Michelle. I'm sure a lot of people would share uh, your misgiving. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.